Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Caroline Odom. On this episode, we are again joined by Greg Bluestein, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. On the previous episode of The Lead, Greg and I discussed the 2020 presidential election and Georgia's congressional runoffs. On this episode, we take those topics a little deeper and also address the storming of the Capitol on January 6th and the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Greg also gives a peek at the process of publishing a book as he works on his book, How the Peach State Turned Purple. Greg has been with the AJC since 2012 and also contributes to the AJC's Political Insider blog. Before joining the AJC, he worked for the Atlanta Bureau of the Associated Press, where he covered a range of beats, including politics and legal affairs. Greg is also a graduate of the University of Georgia. He has degrees in journalism and political science. But before we return to our discussion with Greg, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Additionally, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode of The Lead was recorded over Zoom. Thank you in advance for your patience with audio imperfections. Now, here's The Lead. Hello, Greg. I'm excited to continue our conversation that we started in the previous episode of The Lead. We covered a lot in that first episode, so I'm glad we have a chance to go a little bit deeper this time. So am I. This is great. Thanks for having me back. So in the first part of our conversation, we spoke pretty in-depth about Georgia's state politics and Georgia's place in the 2020 presidential election. But I want to move into national politics, starting with what we saw happen at the Capitol um, with the storming on January 6th. Can you describe watching this coverage and how it impacted your reporting? Yeah, it was horrifying because you can't, as a human, shield your own human emotions, your visceral reactions to seeing the citadel of democracy under attack. And, and, and frankly, for me, I was already coming off an all-nighter covering the runoffs the day before. The Georgia Senate runoffs were January 5th. And so I was expecting a really long week, just like with the presidential election, um, where I was basically up for four or five days straight, it seemed. Maybe I got a few hours in between, sleep in between. But I was up for a very long time um, covering all the, uh, the fallout of the election and the vote counting and all that. And I, I expected, I fully expected the vote count um, to be going for days in the, um, in the Senate race. And I didn't, I didn't think that we'd have a conclusion as early as we did. So I'm coming off of that all-nighter. Um, early in the morning, January 6th, uh, Warnock uh, National, let's call the race for Warnock, and, and, and the race for Ossoff was just kind of like expected. It was just a, a foregone conclusion that, that the outlets would also call the race for, for, for Ossoff. We don't make those calls ourselves. So I was kind of preparing a a bigger takeout story. Um, I had just gone to, to eat a really late lunch. I had um, left the hotel where, where, Republican, um, where the Republican watch party was for the runoffs the night before. And I went to my basement just to kind of watch the electoral college vote while I was working on um, you know, a bigger story about Democrats flipping this, the Senate. And I start seeing the crowds ebbing closer and closer and closer to the Capitol and going over one barricade after another. And um, I just, I, I was just horrified. And I, I just, I think I, I remember, I just, all I can, you know, all I can do is watch and you can tweet, right? And you can write. 
And I didn't really have a, a part in writing the story because I was sitting there writing the, uh, the Senate runoff story and I wasn't about to write the, you know, the big national story about the riots from Atlanta. Um, we have Washington reporter who's actually in the Capitol who, who is under siege at that moment. So I was worried about her. I was worried about my friends and you know, people I covered for years, Republicans and Democrats, who I don't think knew what was about to happen because they weren't privy to what was happening outside. It was almost like you had this exclusive view of what was about to befall on them. You saw one barricade after another of these, of these rioters, insurrectionists, um, infiltrating the Capitol. And then I started seeing on Twitter like these links to live views of, of, um, of people live streaming. And I was just horrified. Um, because then you got an inside look at what was happening and the, the, the befouling, the spoiling of, of our hallmarks, of our, our cornerstones of our democracy. You know, up until like 2 p.m. January 6th, the Senate runoffs were the biggest story in the world. It was this bizarre shift from the world's biggest story to an even more ghastly story, right? Not, not a story of victory and loss, but a story of, of of attack on our, our cornerstones, on our most treasured principles as a democracy. Uh, so, um, you know, so I wrote a couple stories about, finished up, this, tied the kind of loose ends on the Senate stories. And then the governor, Governor Kemp, called the press conference at the Capitol. And um, I rushed down there. There was heavy security. There was troopers everywhere. And I saw a very upset, infuriated Governor Kemp, who, um, who said that he was willing to, uh, to spare no uh, resources to make sure that the state capitol was protected because there, at that point there were threats, there was concerns that state capitals around the nation could face the same sort of attacks that the, the, the U.S. capitol faced. It was a very tense, exhausting, and emotional day, I think, for, for everyone, particularly in Washington, but even for us down here in Georgia covering it. It was traumatic. You mentioned the word horrifying a few times. I think that's a strong word to describe the experience or to describe what happened at the Capitol. I know I was sitting at home watching coverage and just absolutely shocked at what was happening. Um, and it's hard to mention the event at the Capitol on January 6th without addressing the impeachment trial that has developed since. So for the first time in history, we have a president who has been impeached twice. And just context for our listeners, the day that Greg and I are having this conversation is the day that the trial began. So Greg, what are some of the implications of this impeachment trial? Yeah, well, look, as a local reporter, as a Georgia reporter, you always, you always try to find angles. Um, that we, you can bring unique views to the story, right? The, the national outlets will be covering the, the broad-based impeachment. But here I am back in Georgia talking about what this means to Georgia. And there are some ready examples. First of all, it's the one of the first major votes for our two newly elected senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. And you can make the argument that without them winning that January 5th election, um, then the impeachment couldn't go forward because that flipped control of the U.S. Senate. Who knows if, if Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, if he was still in the majority, would have... Um, would have moved forward, but we know that under a Democratic-controlled um, chamber, it was much easier to make the case that impeachment should go forward. Um, so that starts it. Um, secondly, the secretly recorded tape between President Trump and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has played a direct role in this impeachment. 
um, because house managers, the house, house prosecutors essentially um, in, their, in their filing charges said that that call was direct evidence that President Trump was trying to overturn the results of the election. And so they used that as kind of a, the framework to, to push forward charges that he incited this insurrection. Um, and lastly, um, another angle is uh, the attorney, one of the top attorneys for, for representing President Trump is an Atlantan named David Schoen, who lives right around the, you know, right down the street from, uh, uh, from where I live. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we quickly, in terms of covering this for a local paper, we quickly seized on, on those three angles to kind of shape our stories and our coverage of it. We'll still have national stories, um, but that's what every kind of local state reporter is looking for is, okay, you know, the wire services, the New York Times, whoever, they'll be covering these big angles in a way that we can't because they're, they're there in Washington and they've got tons of resources and they've got, in the case of the New York Times, experts on the staff who've literally written books about impeachment. But where do we step in? Well, as local reporters, we always find that angle. We found, we found several for this case. I like that you mentioned finding the local angle and examining how these national events affect our state. And a topic along the same vein of that that I'd like to revisit is the book that you're working on, How the Peach State Turned Purple. I'm sure that lots of these national stories will take a local angle in that book, but more than I want to talk about the content of the book, I want to talk about what the process of publishing a book looks like. You know, how does writing this book look differently than writing for the AJC? Yeah, and it's a process I am unfamiliar with because this is my first. So um, I did not come into this with all sorts of experience, although it's a really neat process to go through. And, and if it works out, it could be fun to do some, some other books um, later on. No, it's really interesting because I was thinking about writing a book in previous um, cycles. I was thinking actually about writing a book in my past job as a legal reporter for the Associated Press got talked out of it by agents and talked myself out of it, which was fine, you know, because it's a lot. It has to be something you're comfortable with spending a year or so of your life doing. Uh, in 2018, I thought about it again when Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams were, were battling it out. Um, but again, I, I kind of decided, okay, the fact that a Republican won a, a gubernatorial race in Georgia was not, you know, the, the stunning outcome. Um, it, was, it was kind of an expected, even though it was very close. That all being said, in 2020, after around Thanksgiving, I started really thinking about it and I linked up with an agent um, who's very good and walked me through this whole process of writing the book proposal because it's not just some, you know, two or three page summary. I ended up writing something like 80, 90 pages um, for a book proposal that, that A, like made the case of why this book could sell, B, why I could be the one, I should be the one who writes it and see like outlines exactly what the book will look like or gives a broad outline of what the book will look like. And that took a lot of time in the middle of the campaign. So I'd be, um, I'd be on the campaign trail by day and, you know, put the kids to bed with my wife and, you know, eat dinner and do all that stuff with the, with the family, work on the blog. Cause every day there was something else to do to, to like post early in the morning. So I'd work on our morning newsletter and our, blog at night and then i'd spend an hour or two working every night working on on the book proposal and by um by right around new year's i had a full draft done our goal was to get it to publishers by um by the day before the runoff january 4th so we got it to the publishers january 4th and january 5th was the runoff 
January 6th, of course, was the insurrection. So everyone was a little bit distracted. Um, and then a week later, several of them, six or seven of them had uh, very in-depth interviews about, about the book. You know, sometimes they were pitching me um, what they could do if, if, if I accepted their offer to buy the book. And sometimes I was pitching them or, or talking or answering their questions about, about characters or about, you know, quirks in the race or about different, different plot lines we could, we could follow. But there ended up being a kind of bidding competition for the book. And it was basically a silent auction and my agent handled all of it. And I was at lunch with actually with several sources who were helping me with the book when, uh, when the auction deadline happened. And, and then uh, we went with Penguin Random House and the great editor, Rick Cott, who's kind of done, been through it all. And then the process started for me actually having to kind of like, I have the 90 page outline. Now I've got to fill it out right now. I've got to add to it. And so the first thing I did, and again, I'm kind of going at this without that, a deep well of experience. I still have to cover, I'm, and I'm still working for the AJC. So right after that process, um, I went to DC for about a week to cover the inauguration. I took a week off of work and did about 30 to 35 interviews um, with a lot, of, a lot of the main players in this saga. And I've continued to do more and more interviews since then in between working. Of course, my bosses are super excited about it. So they know they're, they're, they were on board early on in this whole process. But it's been kind of fun going back, or very fun, I should say, going back into, you know, a few years ago, into further back history, into the crevices of stories that I covered, but I might not have completely understood the, re the reasoning why this candidate did that or this strategist did, did this. So it's been really fun, uh, a fun experience to get a, a bigger step back. And as I'm saying this, I'm still, you know, I still got a ways to go, but I'm, I'm feeling, feeling pretty confident about about where I am right now. And again, it's a, it's, a, it's a completely new challenge for someone like me who's used to writing on deadline, but, um, but it's a whole different style of writing. So it's, it's been really, really interesting to jump into. That sounds like quite the process, a lot of work, I'm sure, but I know I'm looking forward to eventually getting my hands on a copy and bet a lot of our listeners will be excited to read it too. So turning to kind of our final topics, you have a highly visible role as a political reporter at the AJC. And with so much division around some of the topics that you cover, I have to ask, have you ever been the target of any threats? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, unfortunately, sure. Our, our email box, our inboxes are full of, I mean, sometimes more than others, full of invective and full of, um, and full of threatening language. Um, and in the past, there have been, you know, more direct threats. Um, but, uh, you know, we've, and we've let the proper officials and security officers know when that happens. Um, uh, and, and look, unfortunately, it's, it's not unique to me. It's not even unique to, to this sort of beat of the newspaper. I mean, it, it, happens, it happens throughout. And it's, and it's, you know, and it happens on the political campaign trail all the time, too. Um, it's just a very highly charged atmosphere, especially right now. And you've got to, you know... You, you still got to do your job. A lot of times that means tuning out social media. Um, a lot of times it means, you know, not tweeting that thing you thought was so clever or you thought was so funny. And just, and just realizing the world is not waiting for your tweet. <laughs> the world is not waiting for, for that quippy comeback. I think in general, trying to take everything in stride, you know, God forbid there's a, there's a threat, you take it seriously. But in terms of like the invective, the, the hatred out there, um, it, it's, it, 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 unfortunately, it's kind of comes with the territory and you can't let that um, influence how you report or how you do your job. 
I think you may have already covered this a little bit, but can you offer a piece of advice as, you know, a final comment for young journalists who are considering the profession on how they should prepare for covering controversial topics and some of the responses they might get? Yeah, great question, because there's no preparation, there's no experience like doing it now, right? And, and at UGA, we covered all sorts of controversial issues that were, that, that some, some of them were controversial nationwide and some of them were only controversial on campus. Um, but that prepares you in a way that, that frankly, can be a lot, more, um, a lot more difficult than it is for someone like me in my job now, because you're on campus every day and you're writing stories and columns and taking positions if you're a columnist, or you're writing about um, really hard topics if you're a reporter, or as an editor, you're handling those stories and deciding whether they should run on the front page or uh, on the home page or wherever um, that the people are in your class are talking about. And I, I'll never forget, I mean, the feeling of, of writing a, you know, a splashy front page story in the red and black and just in seeing people sitting right next to me in class who might not know who I am, right? Who might not know I'm the one who wrote it, who wrote the story, reacting to it and saying, this guy, you know, is an idiot or this guy, you know, is, is on target here or whatever it might be. Um, that prepares you in covering those, those really contentious issues, um, whether it be when I was in school, it was budget cuts that required layoffs. And it was, we were in this long running fight with the school president Michael Adams, and we had to decide when I was editor whether or not to join the faculty senate and call for his him to to step down um, as president. Um, whether it be you know UGA in two thousand, I think it was two thousand two, the men's basketball team missed out on on postseason play because of a scandal that ESPN broke, but we were all over and uh, in, in, in our coverage of it. So um, you know those are very controversial topics that divided the campus. Um, but also, you know, by the time I got to my internships and my jobs after I graduated, I could tell editors and hiring managers and all those folks that, hey, I had first-hand experience being in tough situations, um, writing about things that were not universally popular. Because guess what? That is what journalism is. It's not, it's not feeding an echo chamber. It is taking, it is writing the truth, writing stories in an objective manner um, about what is happening in your communities. Greg, I really appreciate your insight and the stories you've shared. Thank you for joining us for not one, but two episodes of The Lead. I've really enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for having me, Caroline. Thanks for tuning in to The Lead. And thank you to Greg for joining us for this episode and the previous episode. I'm your host, Caroline Odom. This episode was produced with guidance from Dr. Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and to hear from more interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Lead Podcast. Until next time.